Welcome to the J3 University Podcast. Each week, we bridge the gap between science and in-the-trench experience for physique enhancement. I'm your host, John Jewett. Let class begin. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the J3U Podcast. I'm your host, John Jewett. With me is co-host Luke Miller. And we have a great episode on post-show period and transitioning from contest prep into the off-season phase or extending your prep. And we have none other than the in, in famous or now famous Joe Jeffrey for his education content. I know, right? Give you a big intro. Um, <laughs> he's uh, put out phenomenal information on a thought out approach to the bodybuilding process and uh, giving us some, some logical insight into how we should be really doing things. And his clients are looking phenomenal. And so I think that's where we really cross the bridge of like, hey, someone can talk the talk and have this thought out process. But what do your clients look like? And his clients are coming in and they're making improvements, size improvements, and they're coming in shape. So that, at the end of the day, that's kind of what really matters. But, but also, Joe has a, a process that is um, logical and it can achieve your goals in a safe, less unhealthy way. Because if we were talking about enhancements, there's risk. But um, anyway, Joe Jeffrey, how you doing, my man? <laughs> oh my goodness, what an intro. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I started going and started building and building. I'm like, yeah, joke. All right. <laughs> Hopefully, if people don't look at my Instagram now and they're filled with disappointment. <laughs> um, yeah, for anybody that doesn't know me, my name is Joe Jeffrey. I am the founder of Physique Collective, which in essence is a group of coaches, posing coaches, both male and female, and we all produce educational content for our subscription site as well and between all of us we have our own specific niches within the bodybuilding world so to speak so for me i coach um higher level competitors you could say uh, i don't coach any gen pop anymore um i coach some people that don't compete but people that are after what you could call maybe like maximum physique outcomes or something like this um but yeah it's very specialized towards people searching for quote-unquote optimality and then for anybody interested in our subscription site um the the big push was to one create a community which has been absolutely awesome to watch happen this year you know going to shows and seeing people wear physique collective t-shirt is absolutely unbelievable and, cool. and um the, the fact that we've made a community and people have said to us like we found like we, uh, we feel like we found somewhere that we really like fit in in the bodybuilding world and stuff is um is really, really nice. Um, anyway, so the point, we, we try to make physique development simple on the site. So we have the video content that's, that's very quick. It's all under 10 minutes. It's all edited to be presented in a very easily digestible manner. And then on the forum, we have the longer form lectures and the articles and stuff. So and it's only it's $6.99 a month, you know, so it's not a, it's not a money spinner for us. It's a passion project. Um, no, it's yeah, a, that's you know, me. And it's, it's, it's so hard, like for someone to get that crossover to, to sign up, then once they do, it's like, God, why didn't I do this before seven bucks? And it's like the value and content could send you years ahead in progress from what you don't know now. Um, and I think you do a great yeah, job too of taking those complicated topics and bring it to a digestible format, but not diluting it down either to where you're, you're, missing so much of the detail that it changes the understanding of like the complicated physiology or, or mechanisms of compounds or drugs or anything like that either. So uh, very well done on your side. That's a real talent that you do have. So you're you definitely found, you know, that for one, the passion and, and it's, it's coming out and people are recognizing it. So I think it's, it's awesome what you're doing. Thanks man. That's the reason why I wanted it to be cheap. And that's the reason why I wanted the big push for the videos to be short and, well edited and easily digestible because I do consultations all day, you know, with people in depth topics that people that want to pay more and, and run deep. But I also really want this information in the bodybuilding world. I want people to know this stuff. And so I'm trying to make it like as easily accessible as possible. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's about elevating standard, right? I mean, that's the whole reason we do the thing that we do is so that we have coaches that are coaching at a higher level than what we came into the industry and founded as as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I wanted you on here today, Joe, because just to dive more into like just post-show and like we were talking earlier, like it happens, like I am post-show and I get a lot of questions from clients and just general competitors of how to move through these different phases. You're coming off stage, you're now moving into an off season. I think that's the context we should probably leave it as because it can get, because going into multiple shows is, can be its own thing and you have multiple timelines, but uh, as I say, maybe you have a show that's really far out that might kind of coincide with what we talk about for off season, but um, moving from that first show right out the gate going into this first week and, and you're looking at the client's plan of like, okay, we're going to move you into off season. What, what is your, your general starting like setup and thought of what you need to happen for this client in their first week? Um, I'll just kind of let you take it. I know that's like very big, broad. Um, <laughs> it's like, where do I start? But um, let's keep it broad and then, then, then narrow it down. Like, our, our big main targets you're trying to hit is clients coming off stage. Maybe it's where they're at mentally is going to kind of guide where they need to head um, where they're at physically. Like what does this initial kind of like assessment look like before you're building out a plan for them to move into the post-show rebound phase? Yeah. So first thoughts as a broad overview for any client that's just competed is phase potentiation basically um, and, and what I mean by that is I'm not looking at immediately how can we drive maximal hypertrophy out the gate. In fact, I don't search for quote-unquote rebounds with, with any clients post-show, something that I'm really not a fan of. In fact, I think it's a bit of a, a coaching industry. Um, I don't want to say the wrong thing here. It's, I, I think it's very easy for a coach to get a client to progress for eight weeks or 12 weeks in a post-show period, but I think it's very hard for that coach to get good, consistent progress for eight months or 12 months after the show. Um, and I think everything that we are doing immediately post-show should be potentiating how we are going to move into what I would call the next progressive phase. So the entire macro cycle of the post-show period is about what phase specific goals are we going to have in place that then aligns you to grow optimally? Um, the number one overbearing thing is fatigue management or even fatigue payback, essentially. Over the period of the prep, you've been paying money out of the bank over and over and over again, and you've, you've ran up a big debt within your, your autonomic nervous system and your central nervous system um, that you need to pay back. There's a, there's a few things, whether it be related, drug-related, nutrition-related, when it comes to body fat status. You're going to have to put yourself in a position where you can accumulate fatigue again because pretty much everything we do is built within a, a demand adaptation cycle and all of the demands carry a fatigue cost, whether that be a calorie surplus, whether that be progressive overload, whether that be progressing your androgens or, or, or whatever other PD vector, there's a fatigue cost and you can't accumulate fatigue from maximum fatigue. So we, we need to have a period of resensitization for lack of a better word. So as a broad overview, that's the way that I would section off everything at this point. How do we get there in X amount of time? So a, a coming post-show, achieving like your baseline of fatigue status that's optimal to now like grow from basically within prep we've dumped water into the stress bucket and it's overflowed and fatigues everywhere so to try to push more on more stimulus and and cause even greater fatigue you're probably just going to stay in this state of under recovery ability potentially so i guess for your clients when you're like when they're coming out the gates it's like what is that level of fatigue and where do you need to pull it off from probably? Now, yeah. do you find that's always the case with every client though? Because do you have some clients that like maybe they were ready a few weeks ahead and you've been tapering cardio back and bringing food up and they're actually really fresh 
Um, I'm sure yeah. that situation looks a little different than, of yeah, course, there's still low body fat, though. That's, that's part of the issue. This is the thing. There, there's nobody, or, or at least they shouldn't be, um, in a pretty good position to grow if you actually got in condition, right? There's certainly considerations for people that pull fatigue off, and basically every client for by the time they've got to the show, they're not in a deficit calorically. Their expenditure is back at baseline, but PEDs are escalated, you know, and the body fat is extremely low, and they're not going to be sleeping well. They're not going to have good hunger signaling. You know, they are probably going to be pretty close to overreached in the gym, or within a sort of certain proximity, and also. Over the longer term, speaking non-acutely, within a macro cycle of training, we've probably done three consecutive progressive mesocycles in there. So you get in within a pretty close proximity to when you're going to need a, a maintenance phase or, or, or to use that word again, resensitization phase or something like that. Um, because, yeah, you can pay back some of the fatigue and maybe that will reduce the duration of this post-show phase. But there's still a lot of fatigue to pay back if you're actually getting in condition right yeah i think that's the big takeaway that people like right now everyone thinks about the anabolic rebound post show and like this is the time to make the big gains and i i truly i'm like i'm with you i agree that the post show window is far from being the optimal time for growth to occur if, if anything there's the strongest partition for fat accumulation and in relation to muscle accrual, which I think it's um, people get a little, little bit like misled by what happens post-show because you have this, usually people go out and eat, they have a super compensation of glycogen. Um, they're also having lots of changes in electrolyte balance. So you have all this water retention. You go in the gym, you pump up and you feel like enormous and you look enormous, right? Cause you're lean and, and still like really round from all the glycogen loading, like, man, how could I not be growing and training is phenomenal. Um, so I think that kind of masks like what's really occurring, but you're, you're yeah. absolutely right. Like in a state where like you have all the derangements still of prep, like sleep is our number one recovery tool. Most people are still sleeping really, really poorly. So you have diminished recovery there um, with also like if depending on what you're using hormone wise, you probably don't have optimal hormone function still. And, and so you just, uh, just still aren't going to have like the, this optimal time for growing. If anything, it's going to be an optimal time to accrue body fat. But I think adding in more PEDs on top of that situation, yes, you can grow. You can. Like I've done it. That was like my biggest growth phase was I had was um, a post-show and I hammered it. But I couldn't imagine what like my blood pressure was. And uh, there could have been like a, a much – more thought out approach. And then I will tell you what happened after eight weeks of pushing like that and having to now bring down everything because it was time. Um, then I got super soft and small. It's like, then it was like this kind of roller coaster thing going on, which it could have been a much better, like escalated model, but we'll get into that. So we're still, we're still like out the gate. What, but what I would say is like, yeah, the post-show period it is not set up to have your best time to grow but we should be setting it best, like you're saying, to for recovery. So what, what do we now move into this first week doing and setting up those variables to wash away this fatigue and uh, start from there? Right. So nutritionally, like you said, there's going to be a high degree of adipocyte insulin sensitivity, which is partially a good thing because I want some fat gain. I want fat gain to be one of the phase-specific goals. I want to put a client in the position where they can accrue fat relatively rapidly, but not overshoot where we lose runway for growth. And I'll keep any discussions of the P ratio out of this because we could probably talk about the whole podcast. Yeah. That. But <laughs> just um, <laughs> Too actually much just gaining. To like, it doesn't matter. It's kind of in a way, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So just gaining some fat and then saying, okay, we've probably got this much leeway of fat accumulation before at like the top end, which gives us probably um, a 16 to 20 week progressive growth phase after this phase um, to drive protein accretion for, because no one's driving protein accretion without fat accumulation, at least to some degree, right? So we want a, a, some runway there, but we also want enough body fat on just to physiologically be in a good position when it comes to like 
adipocyte hunger signaling, you know, leptin ghrelin imbalance. We also know from data that this is a very time sensitive mechanism. So getting that body fat on as quickly as possible and then holding there for a little while is going to be smart as well. Um, so, so dietarily, I would typically look at Hey, Joe, before you jump into the nutrition side on the thing you said there with like body fat gain, what, cause you'll have a client come post show. Usually they enjoy some food afterwards. I think you can add body fat almost immediately during that phase. What? Absolutely. Um, there's going to be, there, there's going to be some water and whatnot. Um, right away. Do you, you usually drop them to help them drop water with like a protein veggie for a couple days or do you just push them right back into what you think their new maintenance level would be or surplus? To be honest with you, I think that would be dependent on the client situation. I have not had a single client this year go out and have one of these huge post-show meals, actually, when I, when I think about it. <laughs> I mean, in fact, I was at the FitEx show with the guys and, and um, they went and had uh, – that was just one example. That I had a few clients and there. It was a bigger show a few weeks ago. And they had, like, one burger – with a side of chips, fries for you guys. Um, and then that was it. And the next day, the next morning, they all messaged me, hey man, what, uh, what's the plan for today? And they all, you know, it was all fine, but I think there's a lot to be said about the fatigue management element there. Yeah. I've already got them at maintenance and they've been there for a while and we didn't do anything too funky for the peak week. You know, we just kind of rolled it in and everyone was pretty well and no one was overly sympathetically driven or like still pulling yeah. off fat in the last week, you know, so everyone's pretty stable for that part. If somebody did go and drive themselves to extreme peripheral edema um, with the systolic hitting over the 200s or something, I would certainly want to swing the pendulum the other way. And it's happened, you know, you know, you've had on this podcast, Callum, yeah, he, was, he once had this so bad that I couldn't even see his flip-flops. His feet were so <laughs> All right, so. <laughs> uh, it's, it, it's almost not funny, you know, because of what's really happening there. But yeah, it is extremely dangerous. So if that happens, um, yeah, I would certainly want to normalize everything that's happening within the the, the RAS and, and bring them back yeah. to the baseline before I could push them any further. It, it, I only, I bring it up, and I don't because that's a that's a whole episode on its own. But I bring it up just for maybe to give people listening some idea of what might be a, a reasonable first week weight gain of fat gain that you might be looking for. And I know that's just, it's hard to kind of give a number. Like I, I, I think Eric Helms in the 3DMJ crew, they've had like their post-show recovery diet and they've given some guidelines of like the first week, maybe a three to 5% weight increase off your stage weight could be a reasonable starting point. So say you're around 200 pounds, you know, that, that looks like maybe you're up, you know, six to 10 pounds that first week. Glycogen, there's some fat gain. Um, then from there, you maybe they're looking for a more normalized weight accrual. I don't know if you have anything like that that you go off of or. Um... It's typically based on the individual using some data from the peak week. So I'm estimating that they're, or, or if I've done my job properly, they're on stage with fully saturated intramuscular triglycerides and fully saturated intramuscular glycogen. The only thing that may have pulled their weight down acutely would be if we ran any kind of fluid or electrolyte manipulations. But I would always have a client full before cool. that because you can't get them full and dry out at the same time. You know, um, So I would take data from right when you were full and your electrolyte balance. And this is another thing that I'm very anal about as a coach. I track sodium, potassium, magnesium, calcium, the, the entirety of, of the client's electrolyte balance. Um, because as we know, the pendulum can swing and it can swing pretty damn hard. And on another note for what you mentioned about post-show, if you keep trying to swing it, you're going to keep swinging it backwards and forwards the other way. It's yeah. like, all right, I've blown up post-show so I'm going to take this diuretic and then you go and then you go back the other way right I need to do this and, and people are just doing this you need to just get back in the middle in homeostasis but yeah so I could take data from the peak week like where was weight when you were fully topped off and we hadn't messed around with any fluid or anything like that and the electrolytes were stable you were essentially a homeostasis that's roughly where your home 
the static weight is going to be, but that is dependent on you being ready early enough to have essentially run that reverse and given yourself the opportunity to have that. And so the end of the week, you've had them up. So maybe their body weight is up. Maybe a 3% weight gain would be allowable the first week if you're Mm -hmm. aggressively pumping food. But I guess what you had mentioned is overshooting body fat because going into a rapid surplus, I guess, might lead to uh, potentially uh, like a hyperplasia of adipocytes um, over just the extreme. Um, so there is an appropriate weight of fat gain to occur. And that's why you don't want people gain fat too quickly because you'd say like, well, well, to get normalized, you need this steady, stable kind of maybe body set, fat set points to get to after X amount of weeks. Why don't we get there after the first week? It's like, well, there is a negative to that too um, for a number of reasons, but potentially you might increase the number of fat cells as well. So I just wanted to like, like pull that out and give some people like some reference of like maybe where your body fat or weight should come up to after that first week, what, what we might be looking for to kind of see if you're at a good surplus level. But I guess going on, um, you know, you, you probably have a, the nutrition's probably based off of peak week then too, right? I would assume. Yeah. I'll, I'll quickly touch on something you mentioned there. That's a really important point. So if anybody's interested in the, the mechanisms here, you could go on PubMed and search collateral fattening. This is a phenomenon that happens. There's lots of metabolic water stages on this, essentially long-term deficit exposure. And then what will happen under overfeeding the other side of that and this process of collateral fattening, which is what you said, you know, the hyperplasia of adipocytes, essentially. So you do need to control that rate of weight gain, which is why I have this phasic period structure. I, post-fluctuation, wouldn't really like to see somebody too far exceeding 1% of their total body weight per week post-initial fullness uptick. So it's more like the restoration of normalcy so that we can find that normal rate of weight gain back, right? And we could probably use data from the peak week of like the food amounts with normal fluid electrolyte balance of like this intake with maintenance, this intake brought them up, this intake brought them down to kind of set the nutrition parameters going back. Which John is what you're referring to with like looking back at peak week, if you have that model built out of like this is going to be food parameters that pull me up, pull me down. We can start to map out the plan for there, from there for the peak week. Exactly. For the- so we mentioned someone like we were talking about Christian before we started recording. He's one of he's one of the physique collective coaches. He's also one of my longest term clients. I've been coaching Christian for years and years. One of my best friends. The shout out to Christian. Anyway, um, so we had him by the end of his prep. He was peeled early. We'd reverse. First him out, not doing any activity that he wasn't doing anyway, just like homeostatic steps and whatnot. So I literally just positioned him to be in roughly a thousand calorie per day surplus post show. And he gained, and he, and he was on stage at roughly 200 pounds. And the rate of gain has just been two pounds a week since then, dead on. So, you know, when you've got the data and you do obsessively data collect and pay attention to it, you can make those finite adjustments and be really accurate. That is like, by the book, thousand calorie, two pound weight gain, like perfect. Yeah. Some people, oh, not everyone's yes. like that. <laughs> like, you have a thousand calories. <laughs> someone. Some people like barely gain. Some got, some people like would gain like five pounds, six pounds, right? Uh, of course, you have that data for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, this is the thing, and he also finished prep on about three thousand ish calories anyway, so. It was hardly a struggle. Um, <laughs> but this was a long process, you know. This was a long process. Generally, like, I mean, this is a complete offshoot, but I don't tend to diet people for much longer than four weeks at a time. And um, I have longer longer preps with guys, to be honest, for the most part. I think Christian prep for about 26 weeks. Um, okay. Honestly, uh, I think fame. that's a, a better approach. Like, uh, my best has been longer preps. So, like, the 16-week prep, like, people ask me about that. I'm like, yeah, I mean, you're, you're going to be rushing it usually, but um, I, agree, I agree with you on there. So y'all, y'all froze So up. on the, like, when we're, like, you there? Yeah. yeah Sorry, I lost you then, Joe. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, so like with those longer preps, like one of the biggest things that we can find, especially like running that phasic approach, Joe, is that like the fatigue management across ends up being like a lot better by the end. Right. And so, um, nutritionally, we're kind of setting those parameters, but on the training side, like that's going to be another vector in which we can kind of get this person moving back to that fatigue payback that you mentioned. So like, how is that coinciding with the nutritional changes that we're discussing as far as that first week? Um, so let's, let's use a 16 week prep for example i don't as i said before i don't tend to run more than four back-to-back mesocycles that are progressive and accumulative in nature um back to back and so maybe there's space in fact here, here's what i i would typically do with a 16-week prep i say there's three mesocycles in there four on one off four on one off five on one off or something generally immediately post prep i may repeat another mesocycle of the same structure because the client has a great deal of fun in that post-show window typically right being completely honest and they have the the space because even the acute nervous system perceive even like perceived and non-perceived benefits of eating more doing less pulling down drugs that are lipolytic in nature can make you really enjoy training so maybe i'll have this post-show recovery phase structure to be two mesocycles in length, which it typically is. The first one may be another progressive mesocycle that includes accumulation. The second one will almost always be at um, a maintenance volume and at maintenance calories and at maintenance PDs prior to us going into a growth phase. Okay, so you set up, you'll have initial four-week training cycle that has some accumulation that leads into another four week, more so of a maintenance though, which may, maybe that's something at the bottom end of what you started that me, that first meso with. Volume it usually wise. is exactly that. Yeah, it usually okay. is either that or even slightly below because now that we're in a hypercaloric state, your maintenance volume shifts down um, slightly. So it may be slightly less than what they're to use an RP term, minimum effective volume would have been in the prep. It's, it's likely lower than that. Yeah, I could also see like just their rate of progression throughout those first weeks of load and reps is, can be pretty vast. And so I think moving exactly that last four weeks, you, you don't you don't need this. You don't need any more volume accumulation in any way. It's it's probably already like um, just managing the per set stimulus, but also you're trying to prime them then for this next growth phase, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's usually when I would move to specialization. I don't tend to include any degree of specialization through a prep or that first mesocycle post-prep. I usually just have accumulation over all body parts. Okay. um, And then specialize in in a growth phase. So now you're speaking more so on your more intermediate to advanced clients or... It would have to be because you are competitors, so you'll break in their off-season phase and specialization. Like, hey, for this person, we want to work on back and biceps or something. Then we'll switch to legs and then ro- keep rotating like that. Um, is that how you generally approach it for all? Every single client of mine trains their entirety, but also in context, all of my clients are advanced. Um, so that's, you know, that's the context there. Yeah, like I, I wholeheartedly believe that specialization is the fastest way to grow, even grow systemically when you're in advanced training. You know, I, I can attest to that. And I think you find uh, like being an advanced level bodybuilder, like eventually you start getting to a point where like you're complete somewhere. And that weak body part is, is like continues to be your weak body part. And you might continuously run a specialization cycle um, mm. focused around that potentially. And uh, mm. once you're at that level, then hopefully you transition maybe just like in this overall kind of maintenance phase, but I'm getting off on a tangent, Joe, don't let me. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so that, that's the training piece. Our, uh, is, is the split like the uh, rest period split design pretty much staying the same? Are you giving them some extra rest days coming into their first weeks? Yeah, but do you know what? Usually clients don't want to rest here. No, they, they want to learn more. Yeah. 
there's definitely a point for coaches maybe not going by the book and doing what the client loves because that's always going to get the best result. Very often I program things that I don't particularly like, but the client, like I had this uh, conversation with a client yesterday, a bodybuilder type who specifically loves taking sets to failure with forced reps. I'm really not a fan of forced reps, to be honest. Um, but if we don't do it, he doesn't enjoy training and he's lackluster. So that's, that's a more extreme example. So the, similar yeah. to that, post-show, I've usually somewhat deloaded an individual in a peak week anyway. Yeah. There's usually some kind of camper, and then I'm not really having people train. I'm definitely not having people train post-glycogen loading because, you know, <laughs> why would you perform a glucose-intensive activity when you're trying to maintain the entirety of your intramuscular glycogen? So maybe if it's a Sunday show, they haven't trained since Wednesday anyway. And even maybe yeah. that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday was a tight So they're, they're pretty ready uh, and motivated to go in on the Monday. And we'll usually just repeat the same block that we just did. We might just move things, have a bit more of a mechanical loading focus. Maybe the rep ranges drop. Maybe some of the intensifiers like rest pause, supersets or giant sets, whatever we were using at the latter end of prep. Because I do tend to periodize that way through a prep. Right, increase the workload density. Maybe they're, they're coming down for the most part. Um, but very similar split and structure. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. Like, I am two days post-show, or actually, I guess, three days. So, But my, my last week, my last three training sessions are such low volume and, and far from failure. And then I've been, I haven't gone to the gym in two days, and so today I'll train. So I basically had, you know, about three days off from the gym. And then my last three training sessions were super low volume. And now I'm like, I, I'm about to go crazy. Like I can't wait to go to the gym and train. So, and I feel very fresh, like joints, everything feels great. So uh, I think it makes sense. And I haven't, I don't really change the split as much, you know, on the rest period days, it's just kind of stays the same. And just the, I might, like you're saying, change like the, the volume within those and what the effort level is if you're using drop sets or something like that. Um, so, I mean, that's, the, that's kind of the training piece. And then there is like, of course, the health aspect and drug aspect moving mm -hmm. from into these phases. Uh, what are you doing in, in that regard to that around everything, nutrition and training wise? So if, if we, uh, are you asking enhancement specifically here? Oh, yeah. Yeah, physically. Uh, so, so there's various metabolic pathways that people are using by the time they get to the end of a prep, right? Um, my immediate concern is to remove the fatigue drivers, which can be androgens and lipolytics that carry quite a heavy sympathetic tone and cost, or lipolytics that carry some degree of muscle protein breakdown increase, specifically when it comes to an individual being hyperthyroid. Um, and when it comes to my clients, honestly, I've already gotten a lot of this done. But for general listeners here, my preference even over manipulating calories, because this, of course, comes down to an energy balance equation, what these drugs offer you, outside of their, their mobilization capabilities and whatnot, is to get rid of the drug vector as quickly as possible as Per unit, the fatigue of the drug deployment is a lot more than the caloric adjustment to make up what the drug's doing to your BMR would be. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So if what, what, what drugs you gain, like, Yeah, what you gain calorie-wise, like say a fat loss agent, you maybe, I don't know, you burn 200 calories, but the amount of fatigue that drives that is a lot greater impacting what you could do removing that fatigue, like how it impacts sleep digestion, overall feel, that, yeah, that, that makes sense. Absolutely, yeah, and mapping that into your guesstimations of calorie balance is going to be important. But I would advise that you'd have had this done before peak week anyway, because, again, talking about fatigue management, you will see a night and day difference in your physique when it's at an optimal nervous system state as compared to not so. So drugs like your himbine, drugs like... T3 slash T4 above replacement dosages to a lesser scale clenbuterol. Um, I don't think clenbuterol is as stressing. In fact, there's pretty good data to show that the, the adrenaline 
kick from Glenbutrol's desensitized too pretty quick, not to be confused with the lipolysis elements within the beta-adrenergic uh, receptor. That certainly doesn't downregulate. In fact, there's pretty good evidence that upregulates over time. Um, the Glenbutrol would be one that I would be getting rid of, maybe last if you had to titrate these, and maybe I certainly would titrate them. And then there's a discussion of androgens. Um, there's a discussion to be had with the client, or if you're a listener with yourself, about where your risk to reward lies here. But what you do need is a reduction, and you need runway to accumulate through the growth phase. Yes, there are benefits of escalated androgens. They're antilipogenic, they push up muscle protein synthesis in some circumstances, they decrease, they decrease muscle protein breakdown. Yes, they're beneficial, but they're needed for the growth phase really more than anything, arguably. Um, so how far you pull down is up to you. Androgens are sympathetically driving also. If I was gonna give a milligram per kilogram example, anywhere from TRT to a high risk user, maybe being five milligram per kilogram, I wouldn't want to see anyone breach that. I think at that point, you're, you're just not giving yourself enough runway for accumulation if you're using these drugs properly. Five milligram per kilogram, did I hear you right, Joe? You're saying someone running 200 pound person at 225 grams a week? Five milligram per kilogram. So if you weigh 225 pounds, 500 milligrams. 100 kilos, that'd be 500 okay. milligrams. You could say. I'm math wrong. <laughs> parts important. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I missed I missed that part. Okay. So maybe in your example with that individual, look, I'm a, I'm trying to be an Olympian, right? I'm not talking about me because I'm definitely never gonna be an Olympian. But this per this individual is saying I'm I've got potential to be an Olympian, I accept the risk. Maybe in this phase I'll use three hundred tests, two hundred prima bola not something you know um as compared to just 300 tests or as compared to maybe 150 tests or even 100 wherever their their trt lies you know yeah and i think whether whatever that potential or goal is it still is based off that person's ability to progress within that dosage too because there's also high level bodybuilders that don't require those high dosages because i think that's an assumption that people make like if you're a high level big bodybuilder you're probably using more dosages Maybe that's relative to yourself, but not to an individual. Because there's plenty of amateurs that are going to probably be using already up to an escalated dosage in a cruise phase versus a, a Olympia level bodybuilder. Maybe. Um, yeah. But anyway, um, I, so I, I think what I want to pull out, like going into peak week, the reason you're you're able to use your calorie set points off of that to make the adjustments and they're more accurate is because you've already removed some of the agents that are affecting the energy balance. So I think people might hear that like, well, I use this calorie amount in, in my peak week and then I added in, I gained a bunch of weight. It's like, oh, but you forgot about the other agents that are driving, you know, cal calorie partitioning, but also, um, it, you know, swinging that energy balance around. So um, I agree with you. I find that yohimbine has the greatest impact on like mental function, sleep, anxiety driven stress. And there might be some potential in water retention within it. So like dropping that out before you're even entering that phase is a smart choice. I, I, I have an interest in your thoughts on moving T3 from uh, your contest into this first show period. Uh, being that you, you're coming down to maybe a replacement dosage level because with someone in the initial week, they're also still in, in a uh, low relative you know, energy deficiency state, body fat's low. They're not going to have optimal thyroid function right away. Would you want to keep that replacement dosage in until body fat came up to a certain level where you can maybe turn on thyroid function quicker versus, yeah. hey, no, we're getting you to drop it out. So you, you're suppressing thyroid function. Um, I leaned a little bit towards the prior, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. No, yep, that's exactly it. So post-show thyroid replacement dosaging, the average T4 monotherapy dose being somewhere between 100 and 120 micrograms as according to just the general public. And I generally find that with blood work as well. 
um, just sticking with a T4 monotherapy until physiologically you're in a position where you can expect the fastest rebound if you choose to do so. However, I'm not going to take any ethical stance against somebody using a replacement dose of thyroid either. We've got this strange thing in the bodybuilding world where replacement doses of androgens is completely accepted and normal and even escalations above that. But then when somebody stays on something like a T4 year round, people think that's crazy. It's much the same, you know, within the hormonal axes that we have options to control. And if you're going to go into a prep and use thyroid again anyway, or you're using drugs that potentially have interactions with the thyroidal axis, I say potentially because the data isn't entirely clear on things like trembolone and growth hormone. I don't think it's a terrible insurance policy if you're using a true replacement dose. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And that's what I found as well. And sometimes I've used even what I was using on prep, like, and I've basically replacement dosages and I was starting getting signs of almost being hyperthyroidism as food has come up, which doesn't make sense, I know, but I don't know if I'm somehow getting more responsive or better conversion and um, seeing signs of like, kind of like uh, heart rate increase elevations. But um, I think having that in place post-show would make sense if you've been using it throughout. Um, and then, and then clenbuterol was another one, which uh, I, I've found the similar thing that it doesn't seem to drive up fatigue as much. And um, I'm not opposed to using it post-show for a little bit of period of time, just at, unless you've already removed it completely out of, out of the picture, uh, just to kind of manage more variables or, and have less that you're manipulating. So it, like you said, if you're increasing food and removing clen at the same time, um, it, it might make it hard to estimate where you're going to land versus, hey, maybe you keep a little bit of clen in. Then the, after that first week, you kind of see where you're at, then you can pull that one out. Um, do, you, do you do something similar or do you usually have clen already pulled out prior? Um, so, I mean, this is the last thing that I'm looking at. I, I find clenbutrol's effect is on the nervous system is extremely acute by the end of a prep. And clenbutrol has some pretty unique benefits that, that are nice to us, you know, phosphorylase mTOR, so it's going to be somewhat anabolic. It um, decreases myostatin. It does some pretty cool stuff, you know, um, and it's not particularly sympathetically driving. If used properly, also worth saying that I can't remember the last time I exceeded 80 micrograms of clenbutrol with a client either. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. You know. So, it, it also potentially, like for these, for someone you're coming into a post-show phase that wants to partition less of this, less body fat and maybe more, maybe get a little bit more into muscle if that's even a possibility right now um, that you kind of can put a little bit of a hammer onto a different pathway versus like, Hey, going all androgen um, that clenbuterol does have maybe some impact in mTOR signaling protein synthesis and maybe some anti-catabolic pathway. Um, and then, so that gets into the point of, of what you do with anabolics, but um, I don't think you touched on what you might, what other pathways you might be using in this phase to maybe drive partitioning how you would like, but also not add in more systemic stress as far as like using, bringing maybe growth hormone back in, or even uh, if you are implementing insulin during this time period. Yeah. So growth hormone, I, I just don't ever remove. Okay. To be honest with clients, so never. I've, I've never, ever, and th this is funny, right? This might sound arrogant. I didn't give myself this, this terminology already. I, a lot of people come to me for peak weeks in, in the UK. I do a lot of people's peaks. A big part of what I'm doing, like this weekend we've got the British finals. I think I've got six people in there. I do one of them is my client. I'll peak the rest of them. Um, I, I feel like the people that I peak come in very well. I've never, ever modulated growth hormone or estrogen in my life. Never. So... These are things that just um, have held steady. And something that's more popular now, because there's some great educational providers out there, is managing angiotensin 2 and therefore aldosterone. Um, something that I've done for years. You know, me and Austin did a podcast on this literally four years ago on optimal physique development. That's not to say anybody else wasn't doing it or anything, because I know what people are. Um, but, but this is something that I've always done in terms of fluid modulation there. So growth hormone has usually just remained unchanged. Um, yeah, you have the option to increase now in a surplus because generally I'll use growth hormone in a sense of, right, we're trying to hit the ceiling of free fatty acid mobilization in a deficit phase and we're using accordingly, maybe around that 1.5 units per 100 kilo of body weight in a fasted environment coupled with some 
fatty acid dependent activity and things like this. Those things are not so important with growth hormone when it comes to the growth phase. And yes, escalations in growth hormone that will lead to escalations in autocrine and paracrine or IGF-1 will be beneficial. And there's another pathway that you can utilize here that's going to be anti-lipogenic, more so than acutely anabolic. Um, insulin in this phase, I'll just, <sighs> double-edged sword here. I will use insulin in these phases like a type 2 diabetic would be medically prescribed insulin, usually a basal actin analog just to take some stress off of the pancreas, mostly. I'm slightly averse to insulin here, mainly because of hunger signaling and what insulin is going to do to gastric emptying rate and whatnot. A drug that I do like in, in the post-show phase is GLP-1. Okay. Um, I don't know if this is something that, that uh, you guys use much. So essentially something that's going to reduce gastric emptying rate. Um, if an individual is exhibiting big hunger issues. GLP-1 is something that I don't like to use in the prep, which seems to be common with a lot of people because I don't actually find hunger to be an issue in prep usually with clients, usually more so fatigue. It's post-show that hunger becomes an issue and this is where GLP-1 has efficacy for me. Okay, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And even what I've seen, because I've, I've done three shows this year, <laughs> all back to back, and it's kind of giving me my own chance to like manipulate some variables. And um, for, for one, growth hormone usually isn't getting so high on prep that it is going to be driving a lot of water retention anyway, because I, I think your main benefit is like you're saying, maybe in a fasted state to mobilize some fatty acids, and, and, and then that might be it. So you're not, probably not having guys doing six, eight IUs on, on prep. Um, and then my thought of like removing it the last week or so is that if you are bringing calories up to maintenance phase and the body fat's off, what benefit are you getting at a growth hormone if it, the main purpose was to mobilize fats um, outside of maybe you shift that dosage to PM to still aid in the recovery connective tissue aspects. So I think maybe moving the dosage around might make sense, but that's very like nuanced. Like I don't think it's a you know, big game changer, but what I felt like I've, I've been peeled out and still have like growth hormone in place. And it's like, well, if you, you're really lean, you're like, why remove these things? And I, I've messed around with removing them and not see some big water shift, right? Um, like it might be. So uh, potentially you're using a high, high dosage, but then at the same time you question like, does that even make sense in a contest prep um, for what yeah. it's doing? I think also if you're, if you're truly peeled, in fact, I'll give a client example. Somebody wants to check out Brian Ward. He's a guy that I started working with. How did he do? It's got to be a couple of months ago, but he, he competed as a middleweight and he didn't place. And then we had two weeks between this and, and the next show. Um, he was peeled out of his mind. Um, so what I did actually was basically do everything we could to increase water retention. Um, and he then landed two weeks later as a heavyweight and took third. Um, way heavier but still peeled it was literally all fluid the question becomes if you have no adipocyte space to partition fluid where is it going to go other than interstitially you can control that intramuscularly right so you're trying to get really in some circumstances if you're truly peeled as much fluid in there as possible yeah i've i've talked on this and people think that it's the segmented compartments of there's a muscle and then there's a skin layer and that's mm. your compartments and you just shift between this and that's not how it works. It's like within the muscle is cells and then within the muscles also extracellular space. So if you're like driving a lot of water retention, it will be inside the muscle cells and outside the muscle cells, which is all within the fascia of the muscle. <laughs> and then you have some skin cells and, you know, uh, in the dermis that are going to have maybe a little water around them, but there's no fat there. It's still going to look crazy hard. And potentially like you're saying, like if you fill that muscle out so much, even if you had a little bit more water around the, in the skin cells and outside the skin cells, it probably might look even better and harder. Right. Um, Absolutely. So yeah. I, I think, you know, that's, uh, that's something that it, it's a, it's a risk to play. Like I've thought about this, like driving up more, water retaining substances to like increase stage weight that's like oh i don't know yeah you don't you're, you you have a concern right of like uh looking to not looking as hard but um if you're that lean it like you said it probably doesn't even matter 
Um, especially when you see how some guys are showing yeah, up. Yeah, you can always yeah, for this one, it was like, look, we've done, we've done with the season anyway. There's a show in a couple of weeks. Let's just see if we can do something cool. You know? yeah. and, it, and it pulled off. It could have gone wrong. You know, but I probably yeah. wouldn't say, let's just pull this Hail Mary for your main show or something, you know? <laughs> no, that's, that's cool. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, well, I think that summarizes at least, like, what you're moving with the drug aspect. And to bring back on, on insulin, I, I agree with you, too, because I've, I've used insulin post-show. And it, it didn't make a lot of sense, like now thinking back on like what I know about insulin, because for one, you're in a highly insulin sensitive state. So it takes a very, very, you're going to produce a very small amount and it's going to do a lot of work. Um, so to replace that amount, uh, like what benefit do you gain in that state? I, I, don't, I don't see much. Um, I, I think that's a card to play probably deeper in the off season when you're starting to get to the other side of fatigue accumulation from high food amounts, high drug amounts, and getting maybe there's insulin resistance starting to form. You're trying to extend out the phase a little longer. But I think in this initial post phase, there's probably not as much benefit as what may be seen because you're insulin sensitive. But again, you're insulin sensitive on fat cells as well. And I think driving that hunger signaling up is probably the, the biggest concern too. Because if then it goes into adherence to the plan and uh, if you can't get your client to adhere, well, that's, a, that's problematic. Um, Absolutely. So within that phase, like um, we talked about training, nutrition would be progressed along to keep this, maybe, maybe it's a 1% weight gain, but just get it, eventually get them to land within this homeostatic norm of body weight, body fat. You've removed all these derangements from prep. They're sleeping great. Libido's returned. Um, you've probably looked at more health markers now too, along the way. Are you pulling labs like immediately post-show, like first week? Or are you waiting a certain amount of weeks to look at lab work? I'm most interested in blood work at the client's peak load of drugs. I'm not that interested in their blood work when they've been like running very low drugs. Because you'll get it back and be like, it's good. But like, yeah, obviously it's good. Why wouldn't it be good? Push. That's not that interesting. You know? <laughs> My yeah. goal is always, and has always been, I've been successful in this, it, in clients having very good blood work at their peak load. And the way that we may manage that over time is be like, right, maybe the, maybe this blast, we're going to go to 10 milligram per kilogram with this stack design and we're going to have a look at the blood work. Okay, it's really good. Maybe next time we go 11. Maybe next time, or whatever. You know, what, if that's within your risk and reward, we'll do that. But we won't ever breach the point where we have unacceptable blood work or unacceptable changes in echocardiogram results over time or calcium score tests and things like this. All right, so you're, pull, you're pulling labs right before peak week or right when, right when prep ends? Yeah, it's usually either the week after peak week when nothing's really changed or a couple weeks prior. Gotcha. That makes sense. And then, you, then the, the checks from there are just it, – it's not like a certain check mark. Now we're starting this phase. It's just uh, every 8 to 12 weeks or something, I'd imagine, right? Every every twelve weeks, typically. Twelve, okay. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So you you've now moved this person from we've looking at health markers along the way anyway, and that's getting managed at every moment. We looked at training, nutrition, how PEDs have. Are you escalating at all during like this first phase until you reach that off season, or you kind of hold steady and just let that play yeah. out and letting training and nutrition drive it, the progress. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll hold them low for a while unless say we go through this fat accumulation space and then we go through i do like a maintenance phase as well prior to getting into a growth phase so maybe we'd have four weeks of fat accumulation and then maybe and then move into the off-season setting where androgens are progressive and training would again be progressive and nutrition would again be progressive Okay, gotcha. I think um, one thing I didn't bring up too, Joe, was, was cardio. And uh, it kind of all goes into the equation together. Do you generally have a, a baseline you're having all your clients run just from a, a general health purpose? Or do you have some that just completely pull it out and just go off activity level? Or I, I always just use expenditure as a, as a catch-all, generally. Steps I track with clients all of the 
for aerobic work, I track with clients. Time standing, I track with clients often. Like I use a standing desk a lot. In fact, there was a good that I found recently where they were they were comparing. This is completely off topic here, but comparing the the BMR of individuals that adjusted their occupational activity setting from seated to standing, and, and even in these small women, you were seeing a 700 calorie per day difference. So if an individual is going from standing all day to, to sitting, then we, we, we're probably going to have a problem. Um, but to answer your question, yeah, there, there's, a, there's a homeostatic level of activity that I wouldn't particularly like to drop below for general health purposes, not necessarily for aerobic adaptations, unless the individual had some kind of specific aerobic issue, of which point, yeah, maybe I'd be more interested in their total duration of exposure to higher heart rates, although resistance training for most people covers the aerobic kind of adaptations that we're after. Um, but a baseline level of like steps at the least, maybe six, 7,000 for an individual, I would like to see just for that ability to drive gastric emptying and for that ability for some metabolic flexibility and, and an opportunity to mobilize fatty acids at some point is a good idea. I think that's, that's a big one. And uh, especially just having the digestion aspect is huge, especially when you get to higher food levels. Um, and, uh, and also just the ability to eat more food, which can be, you know, cause like in off season for me, like I, I, like you, I used to do online coaching. I sit all day. If I, if I'm not like thoughtfully doing steps, I'll hit like 3000 a day. Um, and that's me going to the gym too. Need to get a dog. <laughs> yeah. no, and, and so, and I don't do that now, but when I first started tracking them, that's what it was. I'm like, Holy shit. No wonder I'm having to do like, you know, two 40 minute sessions of like moderate cardio, uh, to, 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 you know, move the dial or I'm having to get down to like 50 grams of carbs a day. Um, just me walking, it's not taxing, but my food intake can be so much higher, which I it, like you, you're kind of, there's a balance game to play. Like how much energy expenditure do you want before it starts taking away from recoverability, um, versus how low do you want to go before you're not eating enough to drive performance. And I think there's like that balance within there that like you want to set some type of up, like hey, we, maybe we should be getting a six, 7,000 steps a day as like a, a minimum target. But on the other end, I have clients that work jobs that are like 20,000 steps a day. And to get that person to grow is, is very challenging as well. Um, yeah, I think the deficit is more applicable. There's good clinical data to suggest high energy flux deficits have benefits. High energy flux basically meaning eat more, do more for the same yeah. deficit. That reduced hunger signaling and training performance seem to be better in these individuals clinically. James Creek has got a good research review on that, if anybody's interested in reading that. Um, but so yeah, have, you, have you ever uh, had a client come post-show and their hunger signaling is high and maybe they weren't at a high energy expenditure level during prep that you like, hey, let's just drive up your step count and I can feed you more. Um, was yeah. that a strategy that you utilized? Yeah, and it can often happen accidentally. You know, you put food in and people can't stop fidgeting. Oh, wow. you know, that, that adaptive thermogenesis goes all over the place. I'm one of those individuals, you know. I do at least 15,000 steps a day anyway, just homeostatically, with, without tracking with my dogs. But then post-diet, I start eating, and I'll notice I'm cooking and pacing around. You know, you know what's going on? You do like 25,000 steps. Like, Jesus, it does often happen by accident, but yeah, absolutely, and people are happy to do it. Because also, something that we haven't touched on is doing things that are non-bodybuilding related post-prep is extremely important. Going out and walking with your significant other, getting some daylight exposure, just going out of the house, well, you'll find that you accrue lots of steps that way as well. And you'll enjoy it and you'll be able to eat more. <laughs> That's where I found some utility in like, if I've had to do a prep that's dual steps and cardiovascular activity, just like whatever the situation may be, like dropping the actual cardiovascular activity via whatever implement they're using into steps so that they can do those kinds of activities like outside of the context of prep psychologically is just so rewarding that it just drives further progress yeah. right because you're and something i like doing as well is um using a weighted vest to make steps more time efficient find the recovery cost is extremely low i've done this for ages in fact the first person i heard have consultations with Dr. Scott about three or four years ago 
Um, and he recommended it to me on a prep that I was doing back then. Um, and I've used it with clients ever since. So for example, I walk my dogs every morning with my wife and I'll do about 6,000 steps. Now, if I put a, a 20 kilo vest on and I now weigh 270 pounds, I'm you know, expending far more calories and, and you will not notice that. It's not noticeable. It doesn't dig into recovery at all. But it's just another way to be able to eat more food and create a higher energy flux deficit without an additional time cost. If you've got a client like, um, I've got a few clients that work maybe a finance job, off this job, high stress, long hours. I'll make their cardio as efficient as possible, which is where that weighted vest idea is good. Or even just standing at the standing desk with the weighted vest on if you want to get creative. Well, now we're burning even more calories. You're not even doing anything, you know? I mean, I'm going to get a standing desk. Oh, yeah. man. If I can eat more, I'm all about it. I see that. Autonomy Pro. Well, what, uh, do you have an amount difference of what, or at least maybe in the literature, of what you've seen with like weighted vests? I mean, I guess you could crunch the numbers on like weight of, you know, expenditure. Um, but in, yeah, in there's an equation. There, there is an equation. Yeah. Um, there is an equation that you can you can find i've actually got it saved on my notes here i find this because i know some people would criticize it like oh like how big of a difference could this really make but um yeah but like when you use even the little calculators on the cardio machines and you put different weights in like it, it does like make it a pretty big difference like um it can make a huge difference uh one of the guys that worked for us one of our lifestyle coaches matt strong he did an instagram post not long ago where he detailed exactly the change in calorie expenditure using this equation for him as an individual doing ten thousand steps a day with and without his weighted vest and he weighs about 250 pounds anyway put a 20 kilo vest on there and he was burning significantly more calories for those steps yeah that's really interesting for the same time cost which is the important thing i wouldn't recommend it if it was something that was digging into your recovery capabilities but it's it's really not it's really yeah. not anybody that's walk i mean you're walking with 20 kilos on it's like you, you're carrying a backpack you know but but it's evenly distributed too so that's the thing about it is like exactly. it's not like you're gonna have your your lower back pump from having to hunch over with it it's it'll, it'll, it'll be very like you know ergonomic to you <laughs> Yeah, so there's some cool ones like CrossFit do, like CrossFit companies do these ones that almost like padded on the front and then padded on your upper back. Okay. I, mean, I can honestly say that I, I wear a 20 kilo one and I'll likely do it year round. Like, I quite like the aerobic challenge. And also, and another one like it's the first thing that actually managed to grow my calves quite well. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the, the calf hypertrophy is for real. I mean, look at people that are like heavy, have great calves. Yeah, Batman you know? calf. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I remember, I always remember, like Dante <laughs> Trudell, like one of his like calf like things. He'd say like, get on the incline treadmill as high as it would go, and just uh, lean forward and just do it uh, like on this really slow pace and do calf raises on walking. And I, I would do it because and I would try it out, and it's like, yeah, calves get crazy pumped. He's like, yeah, like just look at like you get fat man calf, like. And I was like, <laughs> it's like, oh, well, okay, maybe there is something, something to that, but yeah. The thing with the weight vest is you're going to be out doing the steps anyway. Yeah. You know, you might as well slap the vest on like the diet. I've just, I've just finished like me and my wife, we like in our spare time, we train dogs. So we'd go out maybe trekking with the dogs or we'd go to protection training with the dog or something. And I'll just wear the vest. No one, no one cares. You know, why got that on on dying? And I might do five or 6,000 steps, might be bending over, standing up, get the dog, put the lead on here or whatever. You know, you're moving around. Your activity, I mean, I've never dieted on as many calories as I, as I just dieted on. Never. And it was just simply the huge focus on expenditure. You could also use it to keep that variable consistent too, right? Because like as you lose weight, you add to the weight vest. And so now... That's something that I've spoken about, yeah, exactly. There's a bit of um, rap data uh, on the gravitostat theory that you've probably seen. Um, I would say it's interesting. I would say maybe not applicable to humans, but essentially in this data, they implant rats with weights so that they weigh more than their homeostatic set point. And then they notice when the rats uh, are allowed to ad libitum that they eat less to the point that they return to their homeostatic body weights over time. Um, 
Now I'll also throw an anecdote in there of the multitudes of clients that I've used weighted vests with this year. I have never had a contest prep season with less hunger issues. Interesting. Correlation or causation, I'm not going to make a, a claim, but it it's at least carries utility through some pretty yeah. objective mechanisms. Yeah. yeah, I think it'd be benefit for like some of the smaller individuals that like, sure. so I have like bikini clients that, you know, so 110 pounds, 115 pounds, like, man, like their time component for energy expenditure is so low to where their food's so low. And it's like, how are you like, so are you okay? But like to put a vest on them, like that would substantially help them be able to yeah. eat, consume more to have positive training. And I, I think that's, uh, be a real but it goes for anybody of course but that's where my mind kind of went to first of like these like little bikini girls like trying to burn calories and it's just like <laughs> you have to go for hours to get something done here um yeah that's exactly the cohort i've been trying to like push the standing desk and the weighted vest and things in the, because like you said you know you're eating eight nine hundred calories and doing like an hour of cardio a day yeah. and you're like, oh my goodness Making everything more efficient is important at that stage, rather than throwing more drugs at it and hoping for the best. Oh, that's that's some good insight at the end here, Joe. I know we've <laughs> got a little over the hour, so I think we can we can wrap it up and not take too much more of your time. But um, I, I thank you for like shedding light more on this like that transition period and how we could go about doing it. I think there's a lot of great data that we can pull off from moving from your last week into your show. That's why it's important to track your data and then be able to build out your plan going into your first week and, and realize that going into this post-show period, it's more about recovery and setting yourself up for phase potentiation, not a weekly, but the long-term. Like, what does this next eight to 12 months look like? How do you get the most out of that phase? And this post-show period is just a small piece of that, but focusing on recovery it's, it's not your main point of growth. It's your strongest point where you might have a lot of fat accrual, but the focus should be on removing fatigue and setting you up for the next phase, which will be your true off season. So um, again, thanks for covering all those topics. I think you already laid out where to, where you can find you and all your website. And I'll, I'll put that in the show notes description. So um, if anyone followed Joe on, on IG or look at his education website, um, both are just the the quality is so high. I'd recommend it, and the cost is is so low that it, it's just a steal. Um, but uh, I'll put that all down in the show notes for everybody, Joe. But uh, again, thank you very much. Yeah, man. Of course, we love having you on. We talked about our our hypertrophy podcast with you was like one of our most popular ones. Oh, was it? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. I don't know if it just because it said hypertrophy or if because it said Joe Jeffrey. I haven't teased that out yet, but I'm going to go in because it said Joe Jeffrey, and, and that's why you had your big question. Let's go. <laughs> I prefer that option. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, if you want to more education, you can also go to j3university.com for my full um, coursework on bodybuilding education. Uh, this is J3U podcast, and we will talk to you next time.